You're listening to Got Tech, the podcast with your hosts, Eric Geis and Nick Johnson. Welcome back to Got Tech, the podcast. This is episode 88 called 10 Ways the Pandemic Made Us Better Teachers. In this episode, we'll take a detailed look at 10 pandemic teaching strategies that we will continue to use in a post-pandemic classroom. This is another episode you don't want to miss. Check it out. So we are back for episode 88. We're getting close to our milestone. That should be in a couple of months. And uh, I'm looking forward to that. But today I am looking forward about talking with you, Nick, about some uh, ways that we can make better teachers pushing forward after the pandemic. Yeah, I think um, it's kind of funny how challenging the pandemic was for teachers and how much work we all had to put in. But in, in moments like this, and I think this is true across the board, not just in teaching, but in society and life it's in the most challenging moments where people grow the most so i know that you know things in my classroom have changed drastically over the past year and i i see that across the board and i know in in our in the office that i share with a bunch of other science teachers we talk about it a lot just in terms how much things have shifted for the better the types of things that you talk about doing and wanting to do in your classroom i think covid forced us to do a lot of those things and i kind of wanted to highlight that in this episode that's how i see this thing going does that sound on track to you yeah i was i was thinking the same thing one of the things as a tech coach that we always wanted to help our teachers do is implement technology and covid did force us to do that not us as in tech coaches but teachers in general if you wanted to get stuff done you had to use technology so it forced us to do that and i think like you said it it's making us better educators and i'm hoping that we use the quality you know the characteristics of remote teaching and remote learning and distance learning or whatever you want to call it and we use those things that we can use later on to push education even further in the direction that we were forced to go during covid so let's get right into it today and and this first segment is called before during and after and Really, if we think about what teaching was like before, and that seems like ages ago, compared to what we're doing now, and now that this year's over, and we can kind of see that we're going to be going back to a a norm, what used to be how we went back to school. I mean, all the kids are going to be coming back for the most part, and so we're, we're getting closer to normal. We also need to see how that's going to make us change our teaching practice come fall. So let's get right into it. Let's let's go over five different things here before we head into segment two, where we'll go into five teaching strategies that we hope does not go away. Yeah. So the first area that we thought there was a big shift in like before, during and after is making connections with students. A lot of this, of course, you know, before the pandemic, it kind of used to happen naturally, just being in class and you're face to face with people. You're sort of are forced to bond with them and connect with them just in your physical presence. So that was before the pandemic, during and after, of course, we kind of had to pivot a little bit. I know for me, during the pandemic, 
we kind of had to start that Zoom meeting in a way to make sure that those remote kids, this is the hybrid, of course, to make sure that the remote kids felt involved and felt a part of the classroom. And for me, that was just a lot of getting them to talk, getting them to get the cameras on, making that a part of what, how we do it and getting them to say stuff. I would ask like a silly question, like what's your favorite piece of chemistry? Lab glassware. And it, you know, nobody cares about lab glassware and most people don't have a favorite, but you can make a joke out of it. And it's just a way to get kids talking. So you get to know them and they feel like they're a part of the classroom. Was there anything that you did to kind of help build those connections when you're Zoom teaching? Well, first, I'd like to answer your question. Oh, yeah. The <laughs> Earl Meyer flask. Yeah. Or, yeah. But, uh, That's the one people mention more than anything else. I don't know what it is. It's because of Earl. Yeah. <laughs> Good old Earl. Good old Earl. And his flask. <laughs> a lot of times what I did is I, I had them develop their own dream catcher. And the dream catcher is really just five or six things that, you know, kind of make up their inner web, who they are, what they like to do, those types of things. And I did that at the beginning of each year. I hated the index card, write down your name, your favorite. I didn't like that. So, and I'm not one to decorate the classroom because, well, let's be honest, I taught in four or five different classrooms and oftentimes all my stuff that I needed was on this big cart. So I didn't feel like I had a home there, so I, I didn't let the dream catchers go anywhere. Often, we would just throw them up on our wall of fame in our office. So we have this wall that we used to share, and, and we would just throw stuff up there when we liked it. Oftentimes, uh, a lot of those got up, up there. And they're really tiny. Uh, they're not like these huge, big dream catchers. They're just a small representation of that. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, we need to continue to get to know our kids and build relationships. At the end of last year, it wasn't that bad in the sense that we already knew our kids. We had them for two thirds of a year or a quarter of the year, depending when you stopped. But the thing is, is we knew our kids. When we started in September, we had no clue who our kids were. And that's where developing those relationships quicker with these little activities really paid off. Yeah, and I think the another, you know, after takeaway as far as connections go is just seeing how important they really are. Because you got to, you know, when everybody's in person, you may not necessarily establish this super deep connection with every kid. That would be really impossible. But the physical proximity, it's almost like it's enough, right? So it's enough for a, a minuscule connection that keeps you and the student linked and keeps that student engaged. But if, ever, if some kids are at home and they're on Zoom, some of us got to see... Uh, what happens when there is no connection whatsoever, when that student is essentially not a part of the class, nobody really even knows they're there because they're just a little black box on that Zoom screen. And when you see what happens when there are there is not a connection between the student in the class or the student and the teacher, it kind of reminds you like, oh yeah, that actually is really important. So maybe that's a takeaway too, is just to highlight the importance of those personal connections between us and our kids. All right, so now that we're connected, let's go into our next... Uh topic here which is the grading system before often we would just do standardized testing or some type of unit test where it would be percentage based i feel that teachers even though we were still using per percentages i feel like we got more into that standards based or category based grading system even though it wasn't officially adopted or anything like that we kind of headed that way so i would love it if we would move away from the percentage system and more into the category-based or standards-based uh, grading system solely because in education, I don't know why we do this, but we 
compare one student to the rest of the students in the classroom. We find the average and this is how you did. But really what we need to start doing, in my opinion, is figure out where the student is starting and where they're getting at the end. Because we never give grades at the end of the quarter based on where or how they performed with other students. They get their grade based on how they perform. So let's start implementing a grading system that supports that way or that logical thinking uh, process there. Yeah, and you'll see this come up with the next thing we're going to talk about too, but it's, you know, when you have to do a hybrid or remote classroom, you really have to evaluate what is important and what needs to get done and sort of streamline everything and, and only focus on what actually matters. And, I, and a lot of that did lead to more of a standards-based thing where, you know, you might have, I even showed my classes sometimes, like, here's the objectives, guys. You can check off now what you know and what you don't know at the end of this unit you need to check off all those things because this is what we have this is what we have to cover basically so uh, just focusing more on that mastery element uh, happened a lot more than it did before the pandemic at least for me and i think it's going to uh, hopefully stay that way yeah i have to add something in here because i heard it so often and when when i would initiate or someone else would initiate these conversations about standards based grading they said well that's how everyone gets a's I go, that doesn't need to be the case. I mean, that's just how you grade. Oftentimes, teachers go and they say, this is what we want to see. Well, that's great. Make that the middle of the line. Make that the C equivalent uh, to whatever your grading scale is. So if my grading scale is out of five, make that the three. All right, And then figure out how students can, instead of just giving me the check mark minimum, see how they can advance that further. So come up with your checklist, make that your three, and then add in how they can get four and five. I, took a, I just did a passion project, and I took a rubric from the great uh, Karen Lucci, a former guest. You can find her in one of our older episodes. And, you know, teachers do view a lot of the times a rubric like that as everybody's getting a hundred percent, but that like you, you, you nailed it. That's just how the teacher uses it. You can make a rubric extremely challenging. And, uh, that's this rubric I took from her and I adopted these things that you talk about all the time. And, you know, to get a five, some of the language that's listed there to really get that perfect score should really push the kids. And, you, and I actually show them beforehand, like, okay, so if you just do the bare minimum, everybody, you're getting three out of fives on this project, and that correlates to a whatever 75%, whatever it is, however your percentages are set up. But um, make sure they know that and understand that this, to, you know, to get the score that you're looking for in terms of quality, you really have to go above and beyond. And I think that uh, deserves to be mentioned. And I think all this stuff kind of links in, too, with another aspect of grading or just other aspects of grading because we really did have to change a lot. So beyond just shifting more towards mastery and standards and getting away from those percentages, I gave less work this year than ever. Before the pandemic, I gave out worksheet after worksheet because there was in AP Chem at least there's so much emphasis on practice. And I got rid of all that stuff and really focused on the quality instead of the quantity. I think it changed for the better. So just asking you to elaborate on that a little bit, you know, 
how did your students do compared? I know you don't have the AP scores yet, yeah. but you could probably tell in their their regular assessments and and how they participate and what they actually know and what they don't. How how did they do? It it made either no difference at all, or I think they did better. This was I've never seen a group of kids uh, feel as confident as they felt after the AP Chemistry exam. So I'm, th- I'm thinking it actually had a, a positive change, and I'll, I'll, I'll extend that further. One of the other things I wanted to mention here was open notes assessments. I gave traditional standard, you know, multiple choice free response tests this year, just like always, and they could use their notes. They could whip out a cell phone if they wanted to and literally look things up. The only thing they couldn't do was talk to other students, and guess what? That also made zero difference on their scores, zero difference on whether they understood things less or more, which kind of just tells me how valuable those assessments were in the first place. Yeah, but I have to warn people out there, I know what Nick's exams look like. It's not recall. All right, He finds practical ways in which chemistry is used, and he asks them to decipher through those ways and go through a process or a calculation or something. So really once again i i remember getting some teachers that came up to me and said hey how am i supposed to assess these kids when they can all cheat and my answer to them which was not very popular is well if they can cheat you're not asking the right questions and i stand by that it's a little bit of tough love there but we have to understand something you have a doctor he's not he she whoever it is is not going to go memorize everything they just can't do that. But what they can do is they can develop a process in which is going to allow them to work through symptoms and get it down to a couple of different options and rule those out based on lab tests. So this is no different to me. When I see this in the classroom, I'm like, look, we don't need to memorize the, the state capitals and the nation's uh, and all that because we could always look it up. We could always look it up. Now, I, I think there's something to be said for geographical sense. We should know some some basic geography and things like that. But how can we ask questions that let us know that they know their geography, but they also have some type of meaningful connections behind that? It's it's uh, Helen Corvaline talked about it last week. Do you remember the the app she mentioned where you can scan something with your phone and it tells you I think it was iNaturalist. iNaturalist, yeah. She even brought up the research, like having kids memorize, like, this is an aardvark or this bug is whatever, I don't know, some kind of a wasp. It, it does nothing for them, and, there, and there's studies to show that. Um, so, you know, just giving them access to that information is, you know, is valuable and important, and they, you know, it's the nature of people to just want to know facts and things and what that animal's called, but... You know, maybe the, the rote memorization doesn't have to be a part of your class, and you can focus on bigger and better things, the process, uh, like you just talked about. So that's one of the big, big takeaways as far as before, during, and after for me. Yeah, let's get into the next one, which is the way that we teach, the instruction. So before, oftentimes, we, we still, you know, hold tightly on to lecture and in, in-person lecture, to be more specific. Uh, some schools and I know ours has been doing a pretty good job at kind of stretching our teaching practices to cover more of a blended learning approach. Uh, but during the pandemic, I, we were forced to either do asynchronous uh, teaching where we recorded ourselves or more of a flip blended learning type practice. 
And with that, you have to be very careful because we can just assign, have them do, and expect them to do it, but we really don't know what they understand. So one big thing that I saw kind of get thrown into the mix and really explored is the way that we provide feedback. And I know we have talked many creative ways using Jamboard slides and things like that about ways to give feedback, but we also did some extensions. And we've gone through this evolution of extensions to now where we're on, on to, uh, you know, our favorite, which is Moat. Moat, yep. Yeah, so I mean, we're using Moat all the time to provide feedback, which is which is awesome. So go check out Moat. But we also found other ways, in-person conferences, just getting small groups in there, breakout rooms, providing feedback that way. Uh, maybe um, if you're doing a hybrid learning or one where the A group is there one day and the B group's there the next day, whoever's in person is getting the feedback just to make it a little bit more personalized. So instruction, uh, as far as flip blended uh, learning and feedback, we also see that we're doing a lot more group work and even in a virtual setting, you know, breakout rooms, we, we do group work and sometimes it's asynchronous group work as well. I ran labs this year. I know you ran labs this year where people at home were working with the people in the classrooms. But the biggest thing with instruction that I noticed was flexibility of due dates. Once again, do due dates matter? Makes made no difference. At, at least for me, it didn't. If they, you know, kids can turn stuff in later because, you know, something was going on at home. A family member was sick. If if you're, and I think it's cool how all this stuff links together too. I mean, if your classroom is flipped, and they can listen in to recorded lessons or get that information when they are ready to get it or when they're available then you can be flexible. And if you're providing digital feedback, and then it doesn't matter when they're when it's done because they're getting that digital feedback on command or on demand. And if you're focusing on quality over quantity, then there's less work they're producing that you have to give feedback on. So it's possible for you to do. And it, it, all this stuff kind of wraps up together. I think that's super nice. And um, I, I, I like that. And I like that all this stuff seems so so. Yeah, interconnected and in, in that flexibility is just another good example. So let's go over the last one and then I kind of want to wrap this up by having us reflect on a question or two based on the five. So our last one is meetings. All right, teachers have PLC meetings, we have faculty meetings, we have parent-teacher conferencing, we have tutoring. All right, we were able to do all this through Zoom or Google Meet or WebEx or whatever your platform of choice is. We were able to do that this year and really did it matter what I, I want to word this in a way that kind of sums all four of them up. But as a teacher, did we is there more of a benefit to do faculty meetings and PLCs and and all these types of meetings remotely? I mean, for me, yeah, for me, there is I know, the knock, I think, on the remote faculty meeting. I'd listened to my faculty meetings on my ride home. I thought it was fantastic. But I have heard, because it came up amongst us, uh, you know, the teachers at our particular school, that we would like to continue the Zoom faculty meetings, but the knock against it is um, you lose the ability for people to interact with each other or do small group work and kind of get in, in groups and discuss things with other teachers if you're on Zoom, especially knowing that some teachers are listening in the car. And then it's just unsafe for them to do that. So that's kind of the downside. I don't know how much people actually value that type of work during faculty meetings or how important that is 
but I guess you would lose that side. Yeah, but at the same time, not every faculty meeting is a working faculty right. meeting. Usually they, we go in there, they give us some type of celebration. We get, And I love our faculty meetings for the brevity of it. I know when I first started, they were a lot more long-winded, and our, our administration has done a fantastic job minimizing the length of the meeting uh, so we have time to break out and work or do whatever you need to do. But I think we can differentiate between faculty meetings going forward. I think that we could say, okay, this one is going to be a working faculty meeting. Everyone needs to be there. This one, hey, you know what? We can You can either be in person or hybrid. It doesn't matter. Yeah. I mean, let's set them ahead of time. This one's a working faculty meeting. You guys have to be in person. This one, we're just sharing some information you can you can join via Zoom. So I think that's great. Conferences and back to school night, I say keep the digital going. It was great for me, although I don't I don't have a kid, so maybe that's different. I do have a kid, but I don't have a kid in school, um, so maybe that's different from the parents' side. Did you have to go through any virtual back to school nights or anything like that? Uh, we did not this year. Yeah. Uh, we're still uh, not in kindergarten yet. Right. We'll go to kindergarten next year, but... I think for these, I think back to school night, it's very important to put a face and a name together and and, and that in-person interaction. I think for the conferences, I think being remote is probably sufficient. I don't think you really need to be face-to-face, and I think it helps a lot with scheduling. Yep. I, I, I think that it makes things more flexible, so someone who has to typically work and take off work, well, maybe they can just move their, their uh, break for their work hour or whatever and attend. Right. All right. So when we look at these five things, connections, grading system, types of assignments or workflow, instructions and meeting, I really hope that administration out there, the decision makers, really take a look at this and see how we can use this as a catapult to move us forward. I feel like we have done a lot of good things as teachers. Uh, Teachers out there have proven themselves to be resilient and flexible and because we've gone through these and we said that you know this didn't make a difference or this did make a difference and things like that do we really need to go back to the old norm can we keep pushing forward in this direction and how open are districts going to be if we do want to push in that direction yeah important questions i know there's like five or six things that we just talked about that i'm definitely going to be changing indefinitely and i'm excited I th- even if nothing changes from top down i know that just a lot of teachers individually across the board uh we're just not going back to, a, to the way stuff used to be so if you are an administrator out there and you're listening to this we'd love to hear your thoughts on this and we'd love to hear how you feel uh, your district's going to push forward or if you just want to make a blanket statement about education and you don't want to get into your district policy, I totally understand that. But if you wanted to chime in, please go to uh, at We Got Teched on Twitter and give us a shout. You can follow Got Teched outside the podcast at gottech.com or on Twitter at We Got Teched. All right, so let's move into segment two, which is teaching strategies that should not go away after the pandemic. Uh, This is one of my favorite things because I think we're heading in the right direction there with uh, getting more into hands-on stuff, PBL stuff, case-based studies, things like that. So the first one is real-world experiences. So what do we mean by real-world experiences? Uh, For me, that just 
kind of means putting your learning and your content for your class in the context of, of why it matters. We talked uh, earlier about, um, you know, focus on quality versus quantity. I don't know if there's a better way to, sh to sort of emphasize the importance of, of schoolwork and assignments. Is there a better way than relating it to something that happens in real life, having kids work on and solve an actual problem that exists? And, and, you know, and deal with it that way because they know then that it has value. And even if, you know, the work they do isn't actually going to be taking place or if they plan out some type of a project, I don't know, for environmental cleanup, let's just say, even, even if that's not going to be used, they do have an appreciation for, well, this type of thing could happen or I might be involved with this type of thing one day. Uh, so I know that that was a, a big way to keep kids engaged when you're in that Zoom class. And uh, for sure, that's that's the type of thing that should not go away uh, but after the pandemic. What does uh, what do you think of when you think of real world experiences? You know, when when I think real world experiences, I, I think about what skills kids need to know, students need to know to survive in the real world. Not only like survive is in health and food shelter, but I mean survive is in today's world. We are very uh, technological. So my best example of this is the uh, podcast that we've been producing at our school with our students. Our students are making their own podcasts and they're, they're learning how to do research. They're learning how to work with technology, the equipment, the mixer, the, the digital recorder, how to edit and and publish those things, how to work with music and bring those into the production of the whole episode. Then they're learning how to brand themselves and work through social media to get their, their podcast known out there to other students and other schools and teachers and, and whoever their audience may be. So by giving them the ability to work with some of the standard equipment for this area of podcasting, you know, the mics, the mixers, the digital recorders, the headphones, all that good stuff, they're starting to learn other ways in which they can market themselves. So when students go get a job, they're really marketing themselves when they go to that interview. Or they're really taking whatever their job scope is and they're learning how to be creative and sometimes that involves marketing or design thinking or anything along those lines. Yeah, and, uh, you know, we talk a lot about podcasts, but this can be anything. This can be writing that gets posted online as a blog or writing that just gets posted in the, you know, in the in the comments section that with your with your Instagram post or your Twitter post or, or, or any of these things, videos that go up on YouTube. I bought a new phone yesterday in the Verizon store and the guy that was working there was talking with another customer about, you know, they're both gamers and they, they broadcast when they're gaming and people watch. And both of them were trying to turn that into a career and talking about how it's almost like a full-time job outside of their regular full-time jobs to do this type of thing. And that's just really common in today's world. So that, that's, that is another uh, thing that we mean there with real world experiences is kind of involving kids in this in this type of work that's happening in well happening in the real world. So that's a good one. All right, let's hop into our next one, which is flexible demonstration of knowledge. So when I think of flexible demonstration of knowledge, I'm kind of thinking that the students can make their own decisions on how they're going to show their mastery in the content. So what are some ways that we can 
allow students to have the flexibility of really putting forth what whatever product that they want. Yeah, so we've got, you know, the, the e-portfolio is, is one we bring up a lot. Give each kid a Google site if you're a Google school and let them build that out for, you know, something that lasts throughout the year. Adobe Spark has another really great platform that we've been getting more into. Uh, both of these likely free for you, depending on how your school works. Adobe Spark is free, uh, has a free version at least. Uh, so that's a great one. Gives the kids that choice, lets them choose how they're going to, you know, demonstrate what they know. And, and that if you can build in that sort of Internet aspect of the website or whatever else their knowledge demonstration takes the form of it, it makes it even more powerful. Yeah, going with choice, you, you can't leave out the choice board either. And you could get very creative on the choice board. I've seen tic-tac-toe boards. I've seen learning menus. Uh, we made one earlier this spring, which was more towards the student content creation choice board, but we called it a, I forget what it was, a, a choice pyramid? Mm, I think so, yeah. It was a choice pyramid, which I think we posted on gottech.com. Um, but basically, as if, if you think of a pyramid, the base of it is research, and they have several different ways that they can show that they researched what they wanted to produce. The next thing is making some type of a product. The next phase is editing and publishing that product. And then finally is the reflection piece where they have to meet with either a member of their audience or a teacher or whatever and discuss kind of the whole process and what they learned from it. Yeah, this is maybe we've come up with a lot of choice boards uh, as part of Got Tech, and we've seen a lot of them too. This is my favorite for sure. Uh, so check out the show notes or just gottech.com to see or get a link to this student pyramid uh, choice board. It's really great. And then the last way that we kind of like to allow this flexible demonstration of knowledge is with the ever popular passion project. Passion project, of course, just letting kids choose something they're into and they research it and they prepare some type of a you know, demonstration of that knowledge. And you could tie this in with e-portfolios and choice boards and all that stuff. So the only thing that separates it out here is is sort of tying in something that the kids are passionate about. I just finished a project, end of the year project with my chemistry classes where they got to do just that. And I had people doing things on, you know, the chemistry of some type of uh, medical issue that their like, little sibling is having and they wanted to learn more about it. Or if they struggle with uh, mental illness in the family. They wanted to research the chemistry of serotonin and just, you know, the list goes on for all types of things. But the important part is they chose it and, and they chose it because it's something that's important to them, which makes the learning uh, not, not only more valuable, but it's going to stick around a lot, a lot longer for them. Yeah. One thing with the passion projects that I noticed is that teachers were building in checkpoints. Therefore, they were keeping the accountability of the students along the way. You can't just have a passion project that goes the the whole year and then there's no feedback, no accountability. It has to be brought, you know, it has to be very clear in the how you communicate it to your students. So I, I definitely enjoyed a lot of those passion projects. I, I really enjoyed watching yours come full circle because we talked about it a little bit, then you put it into play and then I was watching the students complete them and I thought that was pretty cool as well yeah they came out great and uh shameless plug in a few weeks check out hvspn.com you'll see all of our school's uh student podcasts there and then one of those 
will be a podcast called Chemistry Connections, and you can see some of the passion projects that my kids put together. A lot of them came out really, really awesome, so I'm pretty excited. And let's get into the, the third one we want to talk about. Now, this is tough because we have an entire episode on this from a ways back, and it's tough to do it justice in a very short amount of time, but we'll try. Anyways, we're talking about the universal design for learning. This is a approach, a methodology. I don't know technically what you would call this, but maybe a, just a teaching strategy where you get away from that one-size-fits-all approach where I have, I'm the teacher and I have presented this information to you students and now we're going to move on and I said it, so you must now have it. You must now understand that information and have gained those skills. So rather than doing that, you kind of identify what your students need and here comes that word again. You give them choice and different ways that they can access the material. So maybe it's a video that they can watch uh, from you, maybe it's a video from somebody else online, maybe it's an article, maybe it's a textbook, maybe it's a podcast, and then even choice in the support that they get. So different ways to practice those skills or different ways to test their knowledge, different ways to get and deal with feedback. And that's why it's called the Universal Design for Learning because it's meant to work for any student anywhere at any time. So that's that's a great one for uh, remote learning and hybrid learning and hopefully that sticks around too. Yeah, with the universal design for learning, we always give the example. Actually, I heard it first from Kyle uh, Nemus, who was a former guest. Uh, he was talking about that in his episode, but he talked about the picnic, planning a picnic. You have 15, 20 people going there. You need to think of every single person when you plan what you're going to eat. So everyone has dietary needs, all right? So you need to think about those. Uh, maybe it's a certain time of year when only certain foods can be eaten. Uh, so you would also need to think about those types of things. I'm going to bring a new kind of analogy here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say you're planning a wedding and you need to figure out where you're going to seat everybody. And it was funny because my wife and I went out to uh, dinner the other night. This is the first time we've done anything since COVID. Yeah, good for you guys. Um, and there's a couple behind us planning the seating chart at dinner for their wedding and I was laughing because <laughs> you know this kid wanted kid I mean he looked like he was 20 yeah sure <laughs> so compared to me as a kid but right. uh he was like talking about his uncle and I forget his name we'll just call him uncle Johnny sure and let's put him way in the back he right. gets very talkative and his soon-to-be wife was like no nah, we can't do that he you know he doesn't hear very well so we need to keep him up in the front and I just heard that, and I was like, basically what they're doing is they're looking at their classroom or their guest list, and they're, they're understanding the different needs of the people that are going to attend the wedding, and they're thinking about that, and they're making different options for those people, uh, and they understand you know, the different needs. And really, if you think about universal design for learning, uh, and you go back to our first thing that we said about building connections, that's a huge piece of UDL. So Yeah, and um, you know, one way that this, one form that this can take is some, somebody, I forget where I heard this, but it, this is not my terms, and I apologize, I can't give credit here, but uh, I always used to hand out an agenda at the beginning of each unit of study, and you know, now that agenda is called a living agenda, so that's the term I'm stealing where your UDL kind of happens on the agenda itself. So if you, on the agenda, you've got here's what we're covering today. But along with that, and especially if it's like a Google Doc, so you can link things to it, 
here's what we're covering today, and here's the three, four, I don't know, however many different choices you have, but here's the different ways you can, you know, get through that information, and then the other column of my agenda was typically homework, so instead of homework, it's, you know, test your skills, or whatever you want to call it, here's three or four different ways you can do that, and, and within those options, of course, like we just talked about, you've considered actually what your students need, or, or you know them, and you know kind of what their needs are going to be there. So there's there's lots of ways you can set it up, but that's kind of a, a nice one. All right, let's get into our next one. This one might be the most important one on the whole list, and that's uh, access and equity. So I want to commend our district because... Normally, I wouldn't see this type of stuff, but because I'm in a technology role and we needed to uptick our technology to meet the needs of the times, I did get to see a little bit of this, but I know that we did a needs assessment very, very quickly once COVID was coming. I know that they were getting ready for it, you know, at the end of February by trying to figure out who needs Wi-Fi in the district, what students need devices and things like that, and, and identifying those needs. So they did a fantastic job there. But then they also did an outreach later. So they first did a needs assessment of what they already knew. And then after that, they, they found creative ways to reach out to these uh, students and get them what they need. So whether they were Khajiits, which are the providing them with Wi-Fi at home or getting them a Chromebook after their Chromebook, maybe the camera didn't work or something like that. But they found these creative ways. So I would encourage districts to to continue doing this. It Knowing who has Wi-Fi at home and finding out ways to get them or figuring out ways to get them Wi-Fi it's going to make their learning experience, I mean, we're gonna close the gap a little bit. So a student that can work 24 hours a day has that accessibility, 24 hours a day to work on work is gonna have a advantage over a kid that can only use it while they're at school. So I would suggest making a needs assessment as far as technology, Wi-Fi, and some of the basic needs of you know learning should be something that districts keep. It's same with the outreach. What are some clever ways if the school was shut down? We have a snow day, a hurricane, power's lost for extended amount of time. How can we get information out to students creatively? I know that we had our buses doing bus routes, dropping off Chromebooks to replace ones that were broken. And uh, I think that was a very creative way of getting the buses involved uh, getting people involved and as a community working together. So I think we need to focus more on access and uh, equity in all of our practices, not just technology, but that's the one that I saw the most. Yep. And that's obviously the most important thing here because without all that stuff, you can't do a lot of the stuff we're talking about at all. You can even run, you know, similar uh, things on a more local scale just within your classroom too. So I think this is a good time to move into our... Uh, the last thing we wanted to talk about here, uh, which we have called the EdTech Fatigue Management Strategy, which is just, you know, it is what it sounds like. coming, Having a plan and a way to deal with the fatigue of EdTech. I spent, I think, my first day ever as a teacher where I was in front of a computer screen for like six straight hours the other day. I know that's how a lot of people work all the time, uh, but we're not as used to that because we are so face-to-face -face typically. 
it's brutal. And there for, for sure is a fatigue associated with all this stuff. Um, so we've got some tips on how to deal with that, namely having what we have called uh, an EdTech toolbox. And you did a whole episode on this a, a ways back, right? Yeah, I did that episode. I believe it was when your daughter was born. But basically, this episode was me figuring out a bunch of categories in which I use technology frequently throughout the year. So I know that I use technology for screencasting, video creation, audio recording, graphic design, feedback, etc. So what I do is I try to figure out a tool that is going to fit most of those needs. For example, we video. If you have WeVideo paid subscription, you could use that to screencast, make videos, do audio recordings. You could do all that within WeVideo. Now, there are other tools that you're going to use. And once again, I go through the same process. Maybe you could use slides or Jamboard for all your presentation needs. Well, that's great. Go use that. But now I'm doing multiple things and multiple things well, but I'm only using two tools. If you look at the beginning of the pandemic, there were a lot of ed tech companies out there throwing these little professional developments on multiple tools that you could use during hybrid teaching or remote teaching. And as time went on, teachers kept saying, hey, we have too much tech. Show us best practices on how to use tech and incorporate that in. I don't really care about the technology. I have my own set of technology but give me those best practices. And that's where these choice boards came, came into play. That's where these Jamboard templates came out. I know that there's people that were throwing Jamboard templates out all over the place, and they were awesome. So really just narrowing down the tools that you're going to use, and these are the ones that you stick by throughout the year. Students, they have the ability, and this is part of UDL and choice and all that, to use other ed tech tools Maybe you give them a list of ed tech tools that you're familiar with and what they do, and they can go check those out. Or maybe they know about them and they can use them. That's different. But your toolbox should be a set of tools that do a lot of things great, and it's very easy for the students to get access to and be able to dive through the content. Yeah, and, you know, it's just helps. It's a great way to help with that fatigue because if you're doing – screencasting project you already know what you like best and what works for you and and hopefully eventually do your students know uh, what's what they can do with those different tools so that's super important helps to curate these things too so if you've got a google site or maybe a, a wakelet board that you can sort of populate all of this stuff that's part of your toolkit whether that's for you or hopefully for your students too and they know that there's this kind of place that they can go for to find this information and what tools are out there and available to them. That's super, super helpful. So hopefully uh, that will assist with any ed tech fatigue that you're having now that we've been dealing with uh, this style of teaching for so long now. So for most of us out there, this is going to be the last episode for the school year. But don't worry, Nick and I will be still publishing our episode every two weeks. Sure. We'll be around. Uh, we're going to try to switch it up a little bit and maybe uh, get to a couple topics that we haven't visited in a while. 
Uh, I know we've been doing a lot of student creation stuff, but you know, we're gonna, we have some plans to mix in some other things. But until then, make sure that you're telling your other teacher friends about Got Tech the Podcast. Uh, you guys can all follow us at Twitter, on Twitter at We Got Teched. Uh, you can check out our YouTube channel. Uh, which will be in our show notes as well. And you can check out any of our podcasts at any major players, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, all those good ones. And uh, until next time, we just want to say have a great summer, everybody. Thanks for listening to Got Tech, the podcast. Remember to subscribe to our show and follow us at We Got Tech on Twitter so you can stay up to date with the latest episode releases, blog posts, product reviews, and PD announcements. You can also follow Geist and I individually at Geist Got Tech and at Nick Got Tech on Twitter or on Instagram at Nick Got Tech. Finally, remember to check out our website, gottech.com, where we post all our episodes, articles, and resources available to you for free. Until next time.